0: Amen. God, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. Today we're going to look together in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four. And we're going to look together at verses seventeen to twenty four. Ephesians four, seventeen to twenty four. And I invite you all please stand with me as we read together. Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, his people. God's word says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's holy word for us His people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us from your holy word today, that it would be your voice we hear, that it would be your truth that we receive. Write the truth of your word upon our hearts and may its power be unleashed in our lives so that we can give glory to Christ as we live more fully for him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So there's an important doctrine in the Christian faith and in, I'll give you, I'll give you the Latin because I went to seminary for nine years and I got to use some seminary words every now and then, all right, to at least get my money's worth, right? So my Latin pronunciation is not the best, but here you go, ready? (laughs) The doctrine is creatio ex nihilo, you're all very impressed, no, no. It's not impressive. It's, it means creation, creatio, X out of nihilo, nothing. And we've heard the word nihilism or nihilism, right? The belief that there's no meaning or purpose and life's just utter whatever you make it because there's no meaning or value, right? Nihilism. Well, that's where it comes from that Latin word nihilo. The doctrine is creation out of nothing, And what the doctrine means is, in the beginning, right, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And this doctrine says, what did God use to create the world? was Was there this existing stuff that was just sort of there already, matter and energy and atoms and particles, all the stuff that physics studies, was all that stuff just kind of sitting there, ready to go, and on a Tuesday at 3 o'clock, God said, how about creation? And then he flicked the stuff or whatever, did something to the stuff, and turned it into the universe. Is that how it worked? Well, this doctrine says, no, that the only thing that's eternal is God. Only God is a being who has no beginning. And everything else that's on the other side of the line from God, everything that's not God... Began, and it began in time, or it began with time. In the beginning, God was already there, and then God said, He spoke, and He made everything out of nothing. He didn't use existing materials to create the world, He created the material itself, and then used that to fashion the world. That's the doctrine, and it's important because it protects the eternal. Self-existence of God and his utter uniqueness as the creator and first cause of all things. That's a very important doctrine. Some Some of the fundamental attributes of God hang on that doctrine. As you go forward in Genesis, there's another important doctrine. Genesis 3, the doctrine of the fall. And there's a sense in which you can think of the fall as man's attempt to undo God's creation. God made Adam and Eve in a certain state of purity and innocence. In a relationship of love and innocence with God, their creator. And they doubted God's word. They listened to the trickery of the serpent. They took it upon themselves to make themselves like God. And it's like trying to take God's place in a way. And ever since they've tried to be in God's place, they've tried to make God's world the way they want it. And human beings do a lousy job. And so there's the sense in which... The fall is a kind of undoing of what God made very good. We have made it quite bad. Now there is the doctrine of common grace, right? Genesis 6, where God has put in place grace in our lives. But as one of the elders at the church that that I came from before we came here... uh, As one of the elders there, Lee Haddon once said common grace is only so common. Sin is pervasive. Creation is in bondage. Human beings run the world and they try to make it the way we want it, and it's often not the way God wants it. The fall is a kind of undoing of creation. Now we jump forward to the gospel. Salvation is can be thought of as God's act of restoring creation, of undoing our undoing of creation. But not just rolling back the clock and trying to get back to the garden and make things just the way they were in Genesis 1 and 2, to get, just, just get us back to the way Adam and Eve were early in the morning before they met the serpent. We want to roll back the undoing of creation, but then God wants to raise it and lift it up to where he always wanted it to go in the first place. So salvation is like God's act of restoring creation and raising it up to the originally intended glory and purpose that he had for it. Creation out of nothing. Creation is about God making something out of nothing. Salvation is about God making a new creation out of the old creation It's creation out of something. In the beginning, he had nothing to work with. Now he's got not just neutral, inert matter to work with. He's got obstinate, recalcitrant, unrepentant resistance. The matter he's working with, us, doesn't want to be what he's trying to make us into. The stuff doesn't want to get in the right shape. You imagine a potter with his clay, and the clay keeps jumping off the wheel or trying to break the, God's foot, and, or he's, right, we're sabotaging the process. So imagine trying to shape living clay into the image you want it in, or imagine herding cats. I mean, whatever, the, whatever image works for you, we don't want to listen. And so salvation is new creation, and this time it's out of something. That's what we're going to look at today. In our passage this morning, Paul shows us what this creation out of something looks like in the individual Christian life. What God plans to do for the whole creation one day, Christian, he is doing for you as his child right now. So let's look to the text and see what this new creation looks like. So we begin where Paul begins, with the old creation. Paul gives us a pretty bleak description of it. Paul begins the passage this way. He sets up a dichotomy between those who are part of the old fallen creation and those who are part of the new restored creation. And in the front of Paul's mind is Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve. He never uses their names, but he describes our condition in terms of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And we'll see how he does that presently. He tells Christians in verse 17 this. Here's how he starts. He's describing our condition in the old fallen creation. This is what we're like. He starts in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Don't walk like Gentiles. Now, what does he mean when he says, no longer walk? Right? Walking is this very common biblical euphemism for living. How you live. That's your walk. How do you live? He says, don't live like you used to. Don't live like that old Gentile you used to be. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he explained this already earlier in the letter, in chapter 2. He explains this in verses chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He says, so remember at one time you guys are... Gentiles in the flesh, meaning you're uncircumcised, unlike Israelites, unlike the Jewish people who practice circumcision. You're on the other side. Remember that at one time you were these Gentiles. And then he says in verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise... Having no hope and without God in the world. That's, that's not three strikes, that's five. So you're almost out twice. One more strike and you'd have two outs. These Gentiles are in a desperate situation. They are separated from Christ. They're alienated from Israel. They're not members of the covenant. They don't have any hope. And they're without God in the world. So who are these Gentiles that he says don't live like that anymore? Well, it's their old life of sin. They were excluded from God's people. So these Gentiles is Paul's way of calling them unbelievers. Don't live like the non-Christian you used to be. Remember your old Christian life, your old walk, before you were a member of the church, before you came to Christ? Don't live like that anymore. That's not who you are anymore. He calls their old lives Gentiles. In the old creation, where we start is a Gentile. We start out excluded from God's people. Or as Paul says in verse 18 of our passage, he says in the middle of verse 18 that that those Gentiles we used to be are alienated from the life of God. That's also what he said earlier in chapter 2, alienated. We're excluded from God's people, and we're alienated from God. That's where we start in the old creation. He goes on from there, and he says that we are not only alienated from God, separated from Him, excluded from His people, but also, he says, we are mentally fallen and morally fallen. Look how he describes our mental fall in verses 12 and 18 uh, verses 17 and 18. He says, "You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds." Futile minds. Verse 18, "They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, why? Because of the ignorance that is in them, a futile mind that is darkened in its ability to understand and is chock full of ignorance a dark empty head full of ignorance that's where we are and he doesn't mean ignorant like you don't know how to count to four or you can't tie your shoes it's not that kind of futility like they can these people can still do math problems and can still be doctors and nurses and engineers and can still be competent Members of society and, and, and all that. He's not talking about the basics of, of just existing in the world and doing basic things. He's talking about in the things of Christ. In the things of the Lord. There's no understanding. And it's not that they just don't like what they're hearing. They don't understand what they're hearing. Understand in a sense that they really get it. They really get the gospel. Because unbelievers can pass a, a Sunday school quiz about what's the gospel. Did Jesus die for you? Yep. You know, did God send Jesus to do that? Yep. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yep. I mean, you can get that the answers right on that quiz, but if you go out and that makes no difference in your life, have you really got it? I heard one Bible teacher say it this way: There's two gods, two gods that all of us have. There's our uh, there's our sort of there's our official god the one we say we believe in, the one we know the answers to on the quiz, there's our official God, then there's our actual God. And the difference is, the actual God is the one who gets his way in your life. So the God that I just know the right answers to on the quiz, who doesn't actually get his way in my daily life, that's not really my God. Whatever has its way with me in life, that's who my God is. These people have, and this is who all of us are, apart from Christ. Futility in our minds, darkened understandings, ignorance that is in us. We're mentally fallen, but we're also morally fallen. He says in verse 18 that all of this darkness of our understanding, all of this futility, all this ignorance, where does it come from? Into verse 18. It's due to their hardness of heart. We don't just have dark minds, we have hard hearts. Or as he says in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In verse 22, he says that we are corrupt through deceitful desires. Dark minds, hard hearts, corrupt wills, a love of sin, a lack of understanding or even interest in the things of God, excluded from the people of God, alienated from God. That's where we start in the old creation. That's the stuff God has to work with when it comes to new creation. Now, why are unbelievers like this? Why were we like this? Lest this turn into a why are they like that, not us. Why were all of us like that at one time. It's because we are fallen in Adam. Here's where the Adam and Eve imagery comes in. Fallen in Adam. He says in verse 22, and if you have the ESV, it says this. To, he says we are to put off your old self. Put off your old self. But in Greek, it's put off the old person. Put off the old person. And normally it's translated Man put off the old man. And here, he's pointing us back to Adam. Who is the old man? It's the father of all of us. It's Adam. Put off the old Adam. And then in verse 24, he says, put on the new self. Put on the new man. Take off the old. Put on the new. Put off the old Adam in verse 22. And then he says, the old Adam is corrupt through deceitful desires. And here we have another allusion to what happened to Eve in the garden when the serpent says, did God really mean what he said when he said, don't don't eat? Because look, Eve actually said, God told us not even to touch the apple, or whatever fruit it was. God said, don't even touch it. And you can imagine, since God actually never said don't touch it, he just said don't eat it, you can imagine the serpent touching it. Look, I'm touching it. There's no lightning, there's there's not even a cloud. (laughs) What are you worried about? You're not going to die, look, I'm touching it. (laughs) I mean, he didn't have hands, it's a snake, but you get it. He's coiled around it or something. <laughs> but he's touching it, right? And then she's like, huh, I thought God said don't touch it. And look, that thing's touching it. Maybe God didn't really mean what he said. And the serpent's like, of course he didn't. Come on. Take a bite. Give it to that loser behind you, Adam. <laughs> he's not even stepping in, he's just watching. Give it to him. Come on. Nothing's going to happen. In fact, you're going to be like God. And that's what God doesn't want. He doesn't want you to be like him, to know good and evil. And then when Eve saw that it was good and desirable, she reached and she took and she ate and gave to Adam. The deceitful desires, the trickery. Our old man Adam, our old Adam was deceived by desire. Tricked and therefore corrupted that's what our old self is it's like adam it's like eve corrupt through deceitful desires verse 18 says that adam or says that the old gentiles are alienated because of the or alienated from the life of god because of their ignorance think of it you will know good and evil if you eat this fruit The ignorance of good and evil will be remedied if you just take this. But by taking it, he got exiled from the garden. He's alienated for his ignorance, and he's alienated from life, from the life of God, verse 18. We're we're watching the fall take place before our eyes in his description of Gentiles. He says with the metaphor in verse 22... He says, put off your old self. Put off the old man. And here the image is of of us wearing a garment, us being clothed. Put off the old Adam. We are in Adam like our body is in a garment, like we're wrapped in a cloak. We wear the fall like skin, and we carry it around. And this is why Paul says in Romans 7, 24, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver us from this old creation that's fallen in Adam? What hope do we have? If we're in in this condition, how is God going to make... How is God going to do creation out of something when this is what the something He's working with is like? This is where he introduces the new man. This is where the new Adam steps in, the man, Jesus. We're told in verse 22, put off the old Adam. We're told in 24, put on the new self, the new Adam. And here Paul is pulling from his lengthy discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he discusses the relationship of humanity in Adam and the relationship of humanity in Christ. So if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, let's look at a couple of verses there. We'll start in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where Paul says very simply, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The old Adam is the bringer of death. The new Adam is the bringer of life. If you're in Adam, you're dead in sin. If you're in Christ, you're alive under righteousness. Paul explains this more fully, jumping ahead to verse 45. He says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. Quoting from Genesis 2, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He's speaking there of Christ's resurrection. He calls Jesus the last Adam. The first Adam and the last Adam. And the two different humanities that exist depending on which one you're connected to. Which one you've put on. Which one you're wearing. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 46, It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Who is the new man? Who is the new self? It's Christ. He is the one who comes to deliver us from the body of death, to deliver us from the fall. He is God's answer to our undoing of creation. He sends a new Adam and he starts it over. And in Christ, all things are made new. This is why Paul discusses Christians, describes Christians as being new creatures. In 2 Corinthians 5, if you're in Christ, you are a new creature, a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Christ is the one in whom new creation is launched. The one in whom God is undoing our undoing of creation. In verse 24 of our our text, Paul says, we are to put on the new self, the new man, created after the likeness of God. Adam is made is the, in the image and likeness of God. Eve is in the image and likeness of God. This is just another clue that he's thinking about Genesis 3. He's talking about whose likeness you bear, whose image are you in. Are you bearing the image of the man of dust, the one who's alienated, exiled, dead in sin, corrupt, ignorant, hard-hearted, lost, or do you bear the image of the new man? the new man. For in him you are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Christ himself is the true image and likeness of God and in him humanity is remade into that image. Again, back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says this. He says that he sent Christ... So that he might create in himself one new man. And that line, new man, is identical in Greek to put on the new self in our text. In Christ, he is making one new man, one new humanity. Christ is the one who by his incarnation by His life, by His death, by His resurrection, that God has launched the new creation. Now we come to the final point. The way of life in the old creation, the way of life in Adam that we used to live in, that we're told to leave behind in verse 17... That way of life is the state in which all of us are born. God finds us lost in this condition, and then He performs a miraculous act of creation out of something. And what He does in this process is that He does an outward work and an inward work. The outward work is something that you and I can watch happen, it's called conversion. We can watch a person be converted. We can watch them repent. We can hear them come into faith. We can lead them in a prayer or share the gospel with them. We can watch this outward thing happening where a person actually turns to Christ. That's the outward work. We watch conversion happen. But what we can't see is on the inside. We just see the evidence of that internal work, watching their conversion. That's just what being born again looks like on the outside. What con- the new birth is what conversion feels like on the inside. Conversion is what the new birth looks like on the outside. And we can watch conversion happen, and when we see that it's genuine, we have a good indication that the internal work has happened. Paul describes both. He describes conversion, and he describes what happens inside of conversion. He talks about, in our text, he talks about there in verse uh, in verse 20, he begins talking about Christ. He says, look, I've described this old way of life you used to live. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. We are confronted with this Jesus. We hear about a Christ who isn't like us, who isn't like the way we used to live who lived a perfect sinless life who came as God's messiah who came to do the work of salvation for God's people he says that's not the way you learned Christ that's not what Christ is like that's not what God sent Christ to make you into someone who prayed a prayer and then carried on like nothing happened who walked an aisle and signed a card and came to an altar as some little psychological excuse to go home unchanged, but to think you're on your way to heaven? That's not what he sent Christ to do. He sent Christ to absolutely turn you inside out and upside down. To make you into something you won't recognize. To make you into what he always wanted you to be. You didn't learn from Christ to carry on in your sin If you learned about Christ, if you've heard about Him, if you were taught in Him about the truth, then you heard the gospel and you heard about the new life that He brings. That's where it starts. We're confronted with this Jesus and we hear the gospel. That's where this outward work of conversion starts. And then in verse 22, we get the second element of conversion. It's repentance. We put off the old self. We're wearing the old dead Adam's corpse chained to our backs and we're hauling him around everywhere we go and he says, put him off. (laughs) Take off the old Adam. Undo the shackles. Remove the garment. Take off. Put it off the old Adam. Drop him. That's repentance. When you give up your life in Adam. When you give up the way you used to live. When you don't just say I'm sorry, but you turn from it and renounce it and say I will not walk that way anymore by God's good grace. And then once you've taken off the old, verse 24 says you put on the new. Put on the new. That's embracing Christ, trusting Him, accepting Him as Savior, bowing the knee to your Lord putting your all your hope, faith, trust, confidence, reliance upon Him and Him alone and God's promises that are made to you, sealed by His blood, guaranteed by His resurrection, signed and sealed on the table in the sacrament. That's where we actually put on Christ. We crawl inside of Him. We accept Him. We clothe ourselves in Him. This is the way Isaiah describes it. In Isaiah 61.10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself... With her jewels. He has clothed you, Christian, in Christ, in a robe of salvation and his righteousness. That's what we see happening in the outward, in the conversion process. We're confronted with Christ, we're broken in our sin, we repent, we believe, and we rise to walk in newness of life. What happens on the inside when we experience that? It looks like verse 23. We are renewed in the spirit of your minds. That old, darkened, alienated, ignorant, unbelieving, lost mind. Unregenerate. It, all of a sudden, the lights go on and the darkness flees. We're no longer ignorant. Now we understand. Now we're convicted and convinced. Now that hardness of heart begins to melt away and we are renewed in the spirit of your minds. We are transformed beginning with our minds. God literally changes your mind about Jesus. Whereas before, he was uninteresting or just some religious thing you do because mom and dad did that or I grew up that way and it's boring and uninteresting and I can't wait for church to get over and I'm not really... We just go along in our religious comfort and, we, and it's not really something that we truly believe or truly want or receive. And God changes your mind about Jesus. Jesus. All of a sudden, he's treasure, he's Lord, he's beautiful, he's everything, he's Savior, he's friend, he's protector, he's prophet, priest, and king. He's the one I'm going to see in heaven. He's the one I want to be with in the new resurrection, in the new resurrection body. He's the one that's going to make heaven not boring after about the first 10 trillion years. He's everything now, and he, God changes your mind about Jesus. You are renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then you are literally, literally changed, recreated, reborn. He says in verse 24, You are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are renewed. We are remade, reborn, recreated. And that's not just a nice poetic way to say it. We really are different. We really are new. And then we rise and walk in new life. That's what verse 24 ends with. We are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are made to actually look like Jesus in our lives. We practice righteousness. We practice holiness. We trust and obey. And we are transformed. And people can look at us and say, I knew you back when, and that's not who you are anymore. You are different. You are new. What happened to you? And you can say, I didn't do anything. I just am different because I met the one who can make all things new. We are a new creation in Christ. The first creation, Christian, was powerful. It was dramatic. It was a creation out of nothing. The new creation, though, is even more amazing It is creation out of something. God takes a corrupt, lost, resistant mass and He turns it into a portrait of His Son. He makes you into a monument to His grace, a trophy for His Son. He takes a sinful person out of an unholy world transforms you, makes you holy, puts you back into that sinful world, and He keeps you holy, and He keeps you walking with Him. That is an absolute miracle. More powerful, I would submit to you, than the six-day creation in Genesis 1. This is new creation. This is God showing His true power and His true grace and glory to us. God is remaking His world One gospel miracle at a time. So I challenge you today, Christian. Worship God this day for the miracle of your new creation. Worship God for the fact that you are a Christian. Give Him praise and glory when you look into the mirror today. And thank Him for the fact that you believe. And thank Him for the faith that you have If there's any zeal in your heart for Him, any love, any affection, any commitment at all, any zeal for the Lord, give God glory for that because that's His gift to you. That's Him creating something new and glorious out of something old and sinful and broken. Worship Him, Christian. Rise and walk in newness of life. For as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 8 to 10, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works that He prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Rise in new created life. Trust and obey. Give him the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have sent Christ to the new man, the new Adam to remake us into your image. To do for us what only you could do to change our hearts, to change our minds, to show us Christ is, to give us eyes to see him and hearts to love him and wills to obey him. We thank you for the fact that we belong to you. You loved us first, and everything that we are and have comes from that love. You are the one who initiates. You are the one who pursues. You are the one who tracks us down. You are the one who claims us, who captivates us, You are the one who takes us in our broken, fallen sinfulness, in our old state, in the old creation, lost and alienated and estranged and fallen and corrupt in Adam, and you make something glorious out of us. Not so that we can get glory for ourselves, but so that we can be a true image, a true reflection of who you are. That we could shine Our light before others as we trust and obey you, so that you get glory the glory of being the one who made all things to begin with, and the glory of the one who is remaking all things for the glory of Christ. Thank you that you have made us new. I pray you would keep us walking faithfully with you and help us to truly worship you for the sovereign mercy and grace you've given us when it's the last thing in the world we deserved. Thank you, Lord. Write this truth upon our hearts. Let this change the way we walk with you. Let this be a time when we can leave church and say, I am different. I am made new in Christ. And by the grace and help of the Lord, I will walk in this newness of life. Do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.